Hello and welcome to another episode of the Koshcast on underthekoshblog.com and at under underscore the Kosh on Twitter. My name is Alex. Bernie is here. Hello, Alex. Hello, Bernie. And joining us today, very special guest, Joshua Cloak of The Athletic. How are you, Joshua? Thank you for joining us. Good. Very special. I don't know. Let's just, let's just go with regular special. Well, we only have very special guests. Oh, it's, either, okay. it's either no guests or very special guests. That's, yeah. Well, it's a low bar and I like it. <laughs> The bar is either very low or it's very high. We haven't quite decided yet. Uh, but no, thank you for joining us. Um, you've written a book, another book. Um, this one is called The Voyagers, the Canadian men's soccer team's quest to reach the World Cup. Um, Canada have been on a journey and this book documents it. Is that is that a fair summary? I would think so. Journey is, is, is maybe underselling it a little bit. I... <laughs> Like it, it, it's funny, you know, you, you talk to people about the national team and, and what's happening and, and people have a difficult time wrapping their heads around Canada being back um, at the World Cup. It wasn't that long ago that you could have a conversation with someone that, that wasn't completely familiar with soccer in Canada and, and they would legitimately ask, as I was asked, as I'm sure you guys have been asked, does Canada have a national team? Right. It's, it wasn't that long ago. And by that, I mean, what, five years ago that the men's national team was ranked 120th in the world. Mm-hmm. And even like you can put as much stock into FIFA rankings as you'd like. But like the fact remains, they were. And, and this is the term I, I, I used in the book. And it's the term I, I have continued to use. They were an afterthought in this in this country's you know popular conscience while the women's team you know, was winning medals in 2012, 2016, 2021, the only country to do that. The men's team just couldn't get out of their own way. Um, so, yeah, a, a journey. I, I mean, I, I I like to ask people, like, did in 2017 or in 2018, when John Herdman takes over the men's national team, like, realistically, did, did either of you really think that Canada would be here in 2022? No. I'll straight up say I, I did not think that. And I did, like, maybe, like, you know, it was like, I was thinking, like, U.S., Mexico, and then Canada is, like, dragging it out, right? And, and, most, people, and most people answer no far quicker than you do. Like, it's, <laughs> it, it, it's, it's that... It's it's that kind of lack of belief in the men's national team that I think has been a huge part of of their story. I mean, up until like, we, we were using 2018, 2017, 2018 as the touch points. But I mean, even in 2019, 2020, I don't think anybody gave this this team a chance. And yeah, it, the journey is a big part of it. And, and, you know, the men's national team feel this too. Like I... You know, you talk to players for this book and, you know, a few players have told me this this great story about how in John Herdman's first camp in early 2018, um, he he holds his first meeting with the, the players and, he, you know, he has them all kind of sat in front of them and he says, you know, very clearly, my goal is to get you to the 2022 World Cup. And I had a few players, some of whom are, some of whom are still on the team, tell me that they just they started laughing and unbeknownst to them that whole meeting was being recorded by cameras all around the 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 um the room 
And so after the after the team qualifies against Jamaica in, in March 2022, John Harden shows that video to players and you can wow. see which ones are laughing. The point being that the lack of belief in this team was uh, omnipresent, right? Mm-hmm. So um, I guess, you know, to bring it back to the book, it was really um, fascinating to uncover all the reasons, A, why this team became the afterthought they did after they went to the World Cup in 1986, which is when the book starts, and then kind of how they got back to where they are now in, in, in 2022. For sure. I, I want to come back to, to 86 in a second, but just um, you touched in your kind of intro on the women's team and in the introduction to the book, um, you touched on it as well. Um, why do you think it, it's not as if the women's team has had more money or access to a broader pool of talent. Um, why do you think there has been such a, a divergence uh, between the two of, you know, in the last however many years? I mean, the first reason is that if for a long time, um, Canada, the, the men lacked a true generational talent that they have now in Alfonso Davies. And I think, you know, we see it in other sports I mean, the the Vince Carter effect is the most obvious one, but once there is that generational talent, young children stay in the sport because they want to emulate that player, right? Um, Again, we saw it with basketball. You know, you you obviously see it with hockey year after year. The women had that in Christine Sinclair um, for a long, still do. Um, So I think there were, you talked to to some of the younger players on that 2021 team that, that won the gold medal, you know, Christine Sinclair has been in the program long enough that there are players that grew up watching Sinclair and wanting to emulate Sinclair and stayed in the game, whereas they, they might not had Christine Sinclair not been there. So that's kind of the my first thought is is that because Alfonso Davies really emerges in 2018, 2019, you know, with without that player, I think a lot of, you know, young males that were incredibly talented at soccer probably didn't stay in the game because they didn't see that path forward. Um, I mean, obviously the, the kind of the, the, the breadth of, of competition throughout the men's game is, is far greater than the women's game. That's by no means to suggest that the women's team is, is not talented by, by no means am I suggesting Mm -hmm. that, but um, I, I, I would think the generational talent is a big one. And, um, you know, the women's team, they are, and, the, and, and starting in 2012, they just, they were this really likable story. And I think Canadians, like all, or like a lot of countries, you know, they just flock to a good story. I'm sure you guys remember in 2012, you know, w- what Christine St. Clair did in that semifinal of the Olympics was remarkable. And, you know, that kind of drama sells. And the men's team had drama, but in a real ugly way like the kind of drama that you like you you know you you have to wait for a book to hear about um so yeah christine sinclair i mean i we should all be talking about her more she should she should be replacing you know for my in my opinion she should be replacing you know the queen on the 20 dollar bill she's (laughs) she's the queen of canada in my books but uh anyway i'd vote for that bernie there you go i um I agree with you uh, on that. That's a whole different topic. Uh, yeah. Just just on, you know, I know we're sort of jumping time time frames here, but just on sort of the 
popularity of the sport, right? And, and yeah. I think popularity breeds confidence. And as you said, star players breed that. But um, I think this might be the 10th time that we've said this, but when Alex and I and the rest of the guys came to Canada in 2006, mm-hmm. 2007, it was hilarious. Like the football landscape really was hilarious. It was, uh, what was it? You would get um, KJ and um, Charmin. The, the footy score. show. Yeah, the footy, footy show. show. That was what it was. And you couldn't really watch Premier League. You could watch CBA yep. at the time, but you couldn't watch Premier League. And then all of a sudden, year by year, and you could you could get Premier League games, Serie games. And I remember the 2010 World Cup in especially downtown Toronto was just yep. nuts. I never I don't think you get anything like that. I know it's a hockey country and whatever, yep. but yep. that was crazy to me. My, my, and then I, then I tip it to, you talk about this in the book, and a moment that I can't forget, that Toronto FC and Montreal Impact game mm-hmm. in 2016, in the pouring rain, what well, felt like snow, because it was that cold. <laughs> it wasn't. And, you know, you say here, it's an average of audience of 1.4 million viewers in Canada, which is the record for the MLS game in history. It was here anyway. Yep. That, just, that sounds like a lot for anything, period. When you think about that sort of last 10, 20 years, how much do you attribute the game popularity, but also the talent pool to just Toronto FC? Toronto FC is a big one, but I I do think that's a a bit... I I think Toronto FC has certainly been at the forefront of, of club soccer in Canada, but you... It's not just my opinion, you know, and I would just outright ask people in the reporting for this book, like, what do you think the turning point was? And nearly all of the people that witnessed the turnaround of this men's national team point to Canada getting MLS sides. Um, Because look, and, and, you know, I write about the the old CSL, which lasted six seasons, um, and it was started you know, after Canada went to the World Cup in 1986, but the the money wasn't there, the talent was there, the money wasn't there, and the league, you know, imploded. Having a bona fide league where that allowed young Canadian players to stay in the game and not rely on tenuous agent connections around the world and not rely on not having to leave home at 16, 17 and just like cross your fingers and hope for the best, like basically doing what most other good soccer nations around the world do, which is allow mm-hmm. players to stay at home, but get high performance training. That to me was incredibly critical. Like, yes, Toronto FC, I agree with you. And like, but I would just think like, look up and down the, the, the men's national team and you, the list of players that came through MLS academies and got MLS playing time is not short. Alfonso Davies, Sam Atacube, Jonathan Osorio, right? And then you have players that were drafted into MLS and got their playing time there, right? Alistair Johnson, mm-hmm. Kyle Laren, right? This is, it's more often than not, these players got their start in MLS. So to me, that is the the turning point. Toronto FC yeah, for sure, because Toronto FC were the first kind of through the wall. And, it, you know, again, you look at some of the players that are that are on this men's national team. I, I think Montreal will end up having more players on this Canadian team than any other team. Um, mm-hmm. 
partly because of the remarkable season they're having, but Toronto FC will probably be close behind. I mean, I'm sure we'll, we'll have the Daniil Henry debate closer to the World Cup, but I think he's there and I think there's four Toronto FC players on the roster. So, you, you know, I, I think MLS coming to Canada in 2007 was the genuine turning point for this men's national team. And, you know, it's once Ashton Morgan became the first player from an MLS Academy to crack the men's national team, which is something I, I wrote about in the book. Um, I think, you know what, I think that was important because I, I think that again, I know we use this term a lot, but to me it's, it's, it's a valid term. Like that just showed the pipeline a exists and B can work. And I think in part, the reason the men's team is having success in 2022 and other people, you know, agreed with me for the book is because that pipeline has just had time to kind of, I guess, be nurtured. Right. Mm -hmm. And now we have the Canadian Premier League as well, which is only expanding the opportunity for for young Canadian players. Um, One thing that um, I wanted to ask you, so you mentioned that in your research for the book, you asked a lot of people, what was the turning point? I I was wondering if you, before writing the book, as just a fan or as a journalist, had a point at which something clicked and you thought, this is new, this is completely different. Was Was it Davies? Was it Herdman? Was it before that? Yeah, so I I did actively try to go into this book, into the reporting and research for this book with an open mind and and ask people, like, (laughs) let's be fair, like, this isn't like, you're not splitting the the atom here, You're, you're figuring out how to make, you know, soccer work and the fact that... So many other countries around the world have have done things the way things are being done in Canada now is again this is this is the evidence is all there um, and a big and I, I write about this in the book a big kind of um, inspiration for me with this book was was Raph Honigstein's Das Reboot um, mm-hmm. which to me is still is one of my favorite you know soccer books and and the way that he kind of just looked at the the people behind the scenes as much as the events that change things. Um, and yeah, all those people kind of said the same thing. Um, but I guess if being around the men's national team over the, the past few years and then talking to people about what things used to be like um, in the 90s and 2000s, I don't think it's unfair, double negative, but... It, you know, John Herdman is undoubtedly the most important person to the men's national team's turnaround. I, I'm I'm comfortable saying that. I think most people that uh-huh. are around the team, understand the team, would agree. Alfonso Davies is a game breaker, but Canada now has multiple game breakers. But, you know, you talk to people, players specifically, that were on the men's national team when there was talent in the late 90s, the 2000s, you know, those the, that Gold Top Cup team in 2007 was a remarkably talented team. Atiba Hutchinson, you know, Dwayne De Rosario, Julian De Guzman. And yet those players would show up, not all of them, but some of the key ones. And I wrote about this in the book. They would show up to Canadian training camps thinking it was going to be a party first and foremost. Or literally planning a party. <laughs> literally planning a party. And so we, we overuse the term culture. But the culture that John Herdman has instilled to get players to repeatedly show up for men's national team camps when there's zero guarantee of playing 
to raise the intensity in training, to believe in, in what he's selling and, and believe in, in this greater project and take it far more seriously, which again, most great national teams around the world do, you know, again, this, this blueprint is not difficult to figure out, but John Herdman was the one that, you know, created the the blueprint plans and and saw them to fruition so yeah to me john herdman that was kind of my idea going into the book and i i think it it, john herdman obviously gets his due in the book because he's he you know he's kind of the guy in the middle of it all right you you mentioned something about um in the book um well two things are sort sort of linked to me and sort of important to me in the sense of you know when i go back again i talk about when we came right and Canada at that point was in this mass wave of immigration, which it still yep. is, like, yep. basically. Um, you talk, like, you, I think, I, think um, I forget who in the book, maybe it was Donnell or someone, was talking about how immigration helped, right? And how we go back to Trudeau, Pierre Trudeau, and how there's no one culture and all this stuff. And as a result of immigration, soccer became the most widely played sport amongst kids in Canada. And it may, do you think that? because of immigration it was only a matter of time that we got here or is it far more complex i mean it probably is but is it like what what really was the impact also you look at the dual citizens that herdman made a point you know you you like to really recruit but talk to us a little bit more about um the wave of immigration yeah like i i i <laughs> I hope I did um, justice to, you know, my academic brothers and sisters out there because I did try to get academic with with that approach in in that specific chapter. I mean, that's kind of the, I don't know, cliche. That was the idea um, that I think a lot of us kind of understand or understood when it comes to the rise of Canadian soccer. Like, it, it just seems like the line from A to B is short, right? Well, Canada opened its borders. There was a lot of people from around the world coming in soccer is more popular in those countries that people were coming from than it is in Canada. So it would hold that, you know, that soccer influence would, would, would take hold in Canada. And I think there is an element of truth to that. I think um, what had to happen though is, is those people that come, that came, you know, in the seventies had to have kids and then those kids had to stay in the game. And then those kids had to, you know, keep coaching. Um, It didn't, it certainly didn't happen overnight. Um, but there's a few things at play there as well. I mean, one, one thing I discovered and one thing I learned firsthand growing up playing the game in Canada is all these different people from these smaller communities all had different ideas about how the game should be played. For example, the first, you know, competitive team I played for was run by people, um, from Scotland. And so I grew up playing a super rigid 442. And you know, I, I, I whatever. Like I, I was a bit of a mid, I was a bit of a midfielder who liked to be on the ball and 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 I liked to to you know thread final passes. And it, I, I was kind of told you know at times like the the goal is to just get the ball to the forwards as quickly and through the air as possible, <laughs> right? And and so I was okay. That's the way the game is supposed to be played. And then you'd go. 30 minutes down the road to Scarborough and you'd play teams that were coached by Jamaicans, for example, and their quality and flair on the ball just made us look silly. 
But then you would go to different places that were coached by people from Portugal and they had a different idea of how to play. Mm -hmm. And so the, the, the point is, is that there was a lot of infighting, you know, within different provinces and, and, and associations about how the game should be played. So kind of a double-edged sword, but what I thought was really interesting and what I learned and, and to me a real pivotal point specifically when the men's with the men's national team is the first person to really harness all these different approaches, this multiculturalism, these people coming from different backgrounds and wanting to, you know, embody flair in the game. Because again, the men's national team looked like very heavy, serious, physical British teams of the past um, was Stephen Hart. And, 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 and I think Stephen Hart is one of the most underappreciated people in Canadian soccer history, because when he takes over the men's national team, he just empowers players to just play, be on the ball, pass the ball, move the ball, play with creativity, right? Take liberties, take chances, lumping it forward and hoping for a set piece goal as Canada did in 2000 when they won the gold cup was not going to work anymore. Right. The best players in the world at that time were the technically gifted players. And it was hard because Canadian players had been taught one thing. And it became even harder when Stephen Hart was fired um, mm-hmm. or whatever. He, 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 he did not coach anymore after 8-1. But all those players on that national team at the time said if Stephen Hart stayed in the job, what was happening in 2022 would have happened far, far sooner. Yeah, that's it's it's a shame, and I, I think the book really does does great justice to to Stephen Hart. Um, so I think you've kind of achieved achieved the goal there. Um, to bring it back to the kind of uh, 442 agricultural style, which dominated the Canadian national team for a while, there's there's um, one quote from Nick Dasovich in the book in which he says we played 442 with four defenders then four more defenders in front of them which i thought summed it up really well but what you mentioned that um herdman had literally a document a blueprint mm-hmm. as to how the canadian teams should play um we've watched his team over the last few years they're very flexible Mm-hmm. tactically we've seen them sit deep and counter we've seen the press high um they're pretty comfortable on the ball do you know what the document says <laughs> do you know what the the principles are i think well that's just it there are principles whereas in the past there weren't principles one thing i learned is that john herdman made it very clear not just to his men's national team but to provincial teams to youth national teams Here's what I want my number nine to look like. Here's mm. the responsibilities that a number nine should have. Here's the responsibilities and what I want an eight to look like. Here's what I want a six to look like. And I don't just want my men's national team six to play like this. I want, you know, my under 23 sixes to play like this. And hopefully I want my sixes throughout Canada to play like this. This is something John Herdman did um, when he took over um, in New Zealand. And there it was called the whole of football. And the idea is that if you can get an entire country thinking about the game, as ambitious as that sounds, the same way, the success will come quicker. But I mean, like John Herdman's documents are, are egregiously long, I think. Not, <laughs> not, not to a fault, but they're just... 
they're long in the way that you know people have never had this this kind of documents. I don't know if you saw, but um, you know, a, a few weeks ago I was in Montreal working on some stories, and I, I sat down with Alistair Johnston, and I, I literally just asked him, "Why do you guys think you might get out of the group?" Which just saying the, that sentence out loud is just kind of audacious enough, but he didn't flinch and he went into this long in-depth answer. And in and, and part, he said, we got a 64 page document about one team we're playing. Good Lord. One team full of heat maps, <laughs> full of tendencies, full of underlying numbers, full of, you know, ways to exploit this team. So John Herdman, you know, it's, it's cliche, but, he is incredibly detailed. He is exhaustive in his pursuit of success in a way that, you know, I don't think like Stephen Hart was an incredible man manager, right? And he got his best out of his players because he connected with them as people. But John Herdman adding that kind of um, just exhaustive detail is something that makes sure players are as prepared as ever. So in terms of what that original detail like, it was just, or then an original document, it was just about making sure players clearly understood their roles and then they understood, well, here's what should happen. If something happens to my eight beside me, I know what to do, right? You, You mentioned that fluidity. It's because they're super prepared, I think. Bernie, your son's in little kickers. Are you seeing any of it trickle down? <laughs> um, they're just playing for fun uh, <laughs> at, at, at the moment. I'm the one that's like, "Hey, come on, do this and do that." Uh, but I, I think it's I think it's massively encouraging. I it's it's interesting that you, you mentioned that you know the Gold Cup 2000 squad was sort of lump it and, and move. And when I recount some of the players on that team, these are good players mm-hmm. you know many of them if not most of them in Europe at that point and not in England where they were hoofing it at the time but I know Staltari got there later but you know you would have think a lot of them were playing sophisticated systems why was the coaching so far behind yeah I, I think just for a while and like I don't know I, I, I suppose you could chalk like Holger Osiek who was the coach at the time I mean, he was the first non-Canadian and non-British coach in, in well, up until they started keeping records of who coached the men's national team, right? And so, it, he, and even he was not exactly a, a tactical um, genius, right? I, 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 think, I, I think he just looked at his players in that 2000. Like so many of them, you mentioned, there were some in England, a lot of them were playing in Scotland and a lot of them just like, like knew that physical, physical style. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, And he doesn't like, you know, he didn't have a lot of time with his players, right. These, the camps are longer now, you know, uh, and, you know, I think he just looked at the, the players he had and said, this is the the, the best chance we have to success. And, you know, he wasn't exactly, he, he was, he was a pretty rigid guy, I think with the men's national team and, and some of the players spoke to that, you know, sometimes glowingly, sometimes not so much. Um, But yeah, I just don't think there was the the organization too, you know, didn't 
always and still doesn't comparatively have a lot of resources. So it it wasn't about, um, you know, let's do our research and find managers from around the world. And then when we get a manager, that manager has the time and resources to go abroad and scout and watch. That just didn't, that just didn't exist. That didn't happen. Right. Um, it, it goes back even further, right? 1986. I think Tony Waiters did a remarkable job in 1986, but his whole game plan was to just put together a team that could run more than every other team, right? Yeah. And, you know, that that's just what existed in Canada, right? Our best athletes were, were hockey players, and those hockey players were like the idea that to be dominant in a sport, you had to be physical was so was was just everywhere in Canada right that's like hockey at the time was a lot more physical than it is now and that that just attitude was was everywhere so I think that just bled into the national teams and their style of play right yeah no that's fair I mean Marcelo Bielsa will still tell you you have to run more than than the other team to have a chance of winning the game but he's also a bit mad so yeah. Um, and you know what, Canada, you know what, to, to be completely fair, I do think if Canada has any chance of getting a result against, say, Morocco. Oh, they're going to have to run their own. Yeah. <laughs> like, Croatia is the one, and, and I know we're probably going to talk about the World Cup, but Croatia is the game where I'm like, if you if they want to have any chance, any chance of like finding a draw, a miracle draw somewhere, they're going to have to, and, and like, I know they're not super old but they're an aging team they're gonna have to run that aging team into the ground that is and that is how i i genuinely believe that they are gonna have only gonna have success in their transition game and and just pressing 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 but we'll see but yeah i so there's there's obviously a place for running still it's it's just it can't be running alone as it was in 1986 well, we, we have a Tiba, so we're good. We got the we got the running covered. Um, I I do want to save the book too. That there are chapters dedicated to Atiba Hutchinson and his important importance to the to the team, Alfonso Davies and uh, and Craig Forrest as well, who I know Bernie wanted to to ask about. Yeah, um, the the man famously for years, at least like in my circles, was known as a guy who conceded nine. Uh, sure. For United, but sure. When I came to Canada, I remembered the guy, and he wrote the. You know, he's a very intelligent guy. Um, you, you mentioned he got a loan to Chelsea, I believe it was. Mm-hmm. Apparently, it was doing all right, but had to go back for national team duty, and that's the whole patriotism thing, and not, that caused he, the issue. He not had to, chose to, and I think that was kind of, you know, what I tried to do, and I hope I did, was kind of look at. The, you know, with each player or person that I that I profiled in the book um, was look at kind of a, a theme that emerged through them. And with Craig Forrest, it was like, look, a lot of players at the time just didn't like turn down invitations for Canada because they didn't really have to. And they knew that if they went, they'd be giving up opportunities with their club sides. Mm-hmm. And one of those, your club side and your national team side, one of those teams paid your bills and the other one didn't. And the other one made you fly in the back in economy uh, overnight to, to Ecuador and, and one didn't. Um, so Craig Forrest, however, in part because of his upbringing, in part because of the players he played around when he really came up, 
Um, and in part because of something I think deep inside him said, I have to play for Canada. And like he, you know, he saw the men's national team not qualify in 1990. They were kind of close and he probably could have played for that team through qualifying, but he opted not to. And I, I know that that ate at him for years. And so he says, whatever, whenever Canada calls, I will go. Even as some of my peers won't, I'm going to go. And so as Craig Forrest's stock kind of rises, and he's one of the very few um, players or, or foreign players playing in the Premier League in its first season in 1992-93, which is kind of weird to even think about now that foreign players were rare in the Premier League. But, you know, Big Craig was one of them. And he he, he gets a loan deal to Chelsea. And there was, you know, loan deals and, and things becoming permanent. It's... It, there's never just one side to the story, but Craig left to go back and play for Canada when people around him said this might end up hurting you. And sure enough, he believes a loan deal for Chelsea becoming permanent fell through because he was away with Canada and he couldn't secure the deal. And I, again, talking to him for the book and then just getting to know him as a person, I know that that really, really still eats at him, which is in part why that 2000 Gold Cup win, like, meant even though it probably didn't mean much at all to to most Canadians it meant a lot to to him because it was it was validation in a way for him yeah absolutely there's also a a funny conversation in the book between him and and uh Harry Redknapp in which uh in which Harry Redknapp is rather incredulous that Canada <laughs> keep going keep making it through rounds I get Forrester's up West Ham at the time um and uh Redknapp's his manager anyway I'll, I won't say more but I'll just tease it um something that I wanted to ask on just just in the kind of um one of the more serious topics in the book is is the CSA basically and how it's always or at least it it comes across this way and it certainly seems to have been the case since i've been kind of paying attention the csa always seems to be a bit behind the ball um in terms of you know funding which isn't always necessarily their fault but development in terms of coaching as we've kind of already touched on in terms of not being ready when the team succeeds which we saw in 2000 because they weren't able to build on it and the book kind of describes that Um, And even more recently, this team's success has been phenomenal and it's caught on and there is, you know, there's social media reaction and there's people coming to games and I can't buy a shirt. Like I I can't buy my country's soccer shirt. Like there there just seems to always be something. Is that what came through in your research? Yeah, you can't obviously see on the podcast, but my eyes are just kind of rolling back uh, <laughs> because, you know, as you list that, it's it's it feels as if we're piling on, but so much of it is justified. Now, I, I think we should be fair. There have been people over the last few years, important people that have made good and, and positive changes. And I hope I, I detailed some of those people in the book, but... Mm. Yeah, look, the point is, is that I I think a lot of people throughout Canada first really learned about the CSA and and what kind of goes on and how they're viewed by the players this summer when the men's team protested and and went on strike, refusing to play a friendly against Panama because they, for a variety of reasons, the most prevalent, they they weren't happy with the, the contract they had. This is not a new phenomenon. 
right? What you hear, and I think in pretty striking detail from some former players in the book, is that they didn't feel as if the Canadian Soccer Association was taking their success seriously and wasn't preparing them for success. So they would go into games, important games, kind of saying, I mean, if they're not going to get up for it, why should we? Which is you know, uh, madness on all accounts that, that, that players would kind of walk into a game wearing, you know, their national team's shirt and kind of say, is, is, is it, is it 90 minutes yet? And it, and, and I believe those players and that like a lot of times, you know, the, the, the CSA would not treat the men's national team or the women's national team as the premier properties and as the the needle movers that they should be. Um, I just don't think for a very long time, the men's national team were thought of as a way to achieve wide-scale success. Part of that is that the organization was entirely too dependent on volunteers. And so when you have volunteers running the show, you're not going to get real, true, you're going to get soccer enthusiasts but you're not going to get real soccer people, soccer brains in there, right? Like I, I've done volunteer work for, for charities in the past. Doesn't make me a heck of a guy, but I also know that if, if I had to make a decision, I'd be, I'd throw my hands up and be like, no, I'm just here as a volunteer. And I think that when you empower people who don't have innate soccer knowledge and soccer experience, it hurts. It hurts the entire organization. And I just don't think the men's national team were appreciated enough, put at the forefront enough. I've, I've, you know, one of the stories I encountered that I, I genuinely liked, I was talking to the men's national teams, I guess he was the operations manager manager and the men's national team was playing a friendly in Austria. Um, and, you know, anytime I think any, CONCACAF team goes to Europe for a friendly, you know, mid, mid-range mid team, but but a decent team enough, Austria, it's a pretty big deal. And so this operations manager traveled with the team and, and they played the friendly, I believe they won. And when he returned to the CSA offices a few days later, the first thing, you know, his fellow employees said to him were, well, where were you? Where were you for the past few days? As <laughs> if they thought he was just like sneaking off, not, you know, Whereas any other organization, when your men's national team is playing, that that is the sole focus. So to me, that just illustrated just how the the lack of attention that the men's national team got from within the organization. And so then it's not surprising that they're not going to get a ton of recognition and attention outside the organization, right? Yeah, for sure. It's depressing, just kind of saying it. like going through that. It is. it is, isn't it? Like when I when I yep. say it out loud, I'm like, yeah, it's not surprising that there's a still a generation of people who would will, will will wear other national team shirts. Other a generation of Canadians that will wear other national team shirts in Canada. Well, yeah, I mean, to pick. sorry. Go ahead, go ahead Alex. I was just going to say there are, there are some soccer clubs that, like I think Atalanta like if you're born born in Bergamo they the, the club gives the baby a shirt 
like in the hospital. Like we could be doing that. There aren't that many people in Canada. We could be, we could just be giving shirts. Anyway, Bernie, go ahead. That's, that's, that's a very good point. Because, and, and I think that goes back to sort of that feeling that we all got in, especially the 2010 World Cup. I remember that one very specifically because everyone, when you tie it back to immigration, you know, this the thing about Toronto is 50% of people that live in Toronto weren't even born in Canada at all. So everyone was celebrating their own country, right? But when the World Cup comes in 2000, uh, 2022, Qatar, you're going to see... I suspect a lot of that, but you're going to see more Canadian jerseys on top of that. And then when 2026 comes by, that's going to be very interesting. In well, that, 20- that's when all the that's when all the shirt deliveries will come through. So <laughs> <laughs> there is there is so much work to be done. And and look, I I was we I was very fortunate to be um, in Costa Rica. Um, during qualifying, when the, it looked like they they could qualify, I, I think it was match day eleven or, or twelve, um, and I was there in, in San Jose for a few days. And I mean it when I say that you would have to work very hard to have not purchased a national team shirt in Costa Rica. <laughs> I, listen, I I was astounded as someone you know as a collector of shirts. I mean it when I say I would go across the street from my hotel to the Seven Eleven. And both home and away in multiple sizes were available in the 7-Eleven. The morning of the game, Costa Rica, Canada, you know, I, I, I wake up, I turn on the TV. I don't know what I was expecting to see out of habit. And flipping through all these Costa Rican news broadcasts, everybody, news broadcasters were wearing the national team shirts. And then I go out on the street for a walk. Everybody's wearing the shirt and they're for sale everywhere. And I, the first thought I, I had was, I know, you know, some shirts don't mean everything, but I, I thought, wow, Canada still has a ways to go to be a quote unquote soccer nation because mm-hmm. the level of focus on that game and the way that everybody and the, the way that the, the team galvanized the country and the evidence is in the, the red shirts was so striking to me. And maybe that happens in 2022. Like maybe it, maybe it happens, but I do think 2026 is probably a lot more reasonable of a, of a goal. Yeah. I think 2022 is a bit, especially as it's a November. Like, I think a lot of people are like, just, you know, back to school work. Like, oh, it's a world cup. Oh my God. Like, <laughs> I think a lot of people are going to feel like that, but I had a particular gripe about 2026 and Alex, I don't know if you remember this, but, before they announced the cities, and this was like, I think when they first announced the bid, I said, I understand this is a U.S. bid with Canada and Mexico attached for flavor. Like, you know, just add a little extra <laughs> spice, cool. I understand that's what it is, fine. But for me, and I know it's not going to happen, but for me, I've always said, Mexico's hosted a World Cup before. The U.S. has hosted a World Cup before. I, w- I knew we were only going to get like a couple of games, not going to get anything past quarterfinals, fine at least let Canada have the opening game. And I'm very maniacal about this, and no one else seems to care. They're just like, whatever, you got a few games. I'm like, I feel like it does matter for the sake, because if you do this pomp and this ceremony, right, and you broadcast that in Canada, that is, because the U.S. had this USA 94 launching point, right? I think if we could, that would help a little bit. I don't know. I'd throw it out there, see what you think. See if you're on my side, because everyone else thinks I'm just like, whatever, making too much of it. But I think it, it would have been important. I don't think you're making too much of it at all. In fact, I remember when it was awarded, I remember someone told me, now, 
people say things all the time, but I remember someone telling me at the kind of event that, that, you know, once the, once the, it was announced in, in 2018, that that was going to be a push for Toronto was to get the opening game. Now, again, people say things, but I do remember thinking, yeah, like they're not, you know, Toronto, we'll see what happens with the stadium, but they're, they're not going to get anything past the quarterfinals. So maybe the opening game is kind of a, a here you go, but there's, I, I like the idea. I just think there's far, there will be far bigger stadiums that, that FIFA will want to put out Mm. there for the rest of the world to see for that opening game. I just looked it up. It looks like it's going to be at either the Rose Bowl or the Azteca. Yeah, I don't. Oh, come on. (laughs) Come on. Wait, wait. How many? I know Vancouver, are they hosting? Yes. How many? um, uh, What's what's the name called? What's the name called? I'm drawing a blank. Well, I don't think it's been finalized, but the, 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 the word around the, the water cooler, if people still use that term, um, is that, is that Vancouver could get more games than Toronto, which whatever. Cause they're going to upgrade, um, BMO field. I heard to like 50 something or six, four, 45, 45. Okay. That's never going to get an opening game for that. No. But, <laughs> what's the, what's the, I keep forgetting the name of this. BC place? Can't that hold a hundred thousand? Or am I dreaming? You, that's a that's a that's a dream. Uh, but I love the I love the <laughs> ambition. <That's> a, <laughs> I love the idea that that anywhere in Canada could hold a hundred thousand. Um, it's sixty thousand. Yeah. Is the, so, well, okay, that's the White Caps all time record. We're creeping up there. Yeah. But, yeah. It wasn't okay. Olympic Stadium. Saputo, so what, what, what was it? The one in Montreal, the Olympic Stadium. I mean, is that? I'm, I want this so bad. I want to start a petition. So Get this I think, like, hashtag I, going. I, I know Montreal not in it, but whatever. Yeah, I think that's close to 60. I could be wrong, but yeah, they're 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 out for now. Best case scenario for 2026 is Canada gets a heavyweight in their group. Like Belgium is an insanely talented team, but I do during the draw. I remember thinking, ah, like it. If Canada really wanted this, if really wanted to get this this World Cup to pop, like they would have had a country that has some kind of um, heavy immigrant uh, background in Canada, right? Mm-hmm. Or a team that like really, really pops, like a Brazil and Argentina, whereas like where like that game, you know, just the the neutrals would have tuned in for anyway. So I think that's got to be like a hope is that Canada gets a huge team in their group and then you know you just they would split their games i'm sure between toronto and and vancouver um because yeah like i do think like they have canada has a tough group but they also don't have croatia i guess you could make the case but like i don't know a lot of people from belgium living in canada because i i know all three of them oh you do (laughs) no I i know one i know one where are they going to be? You know, like I, I, like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I <laughs> no, I, I do think that's something like I, as the draw kind of unfolded, it looked for about 90 seconds, like Canada was going to get Germany. And I was like, that could be a real, but you know, anyway, it, it that's, I think what, what Canada has got to be hoping for in some part, part in 2026. Yeah. I, I like the Brazil idea because 
what what would be ideal is if Brazil win it this year so that you know they're still a big powerhouse team come 2026 but they're not motivated to win whatsoever so they're in the group for the star factor but Canada actually has a chance of beating them that, that I think that would be good Wow. Yeah. I think mm-hmm. Canada having a chance of beating Brazil is, would be very good. <laughs> hey, listen, when, when I grew up, <laughs> be very good. when I, when I, I remember growing up and I don't remember what, was it the Confederations Cup? Maybe? Yeah, it was, a, it was, I, I know what you're thinking of. It was, I think it was nil, a nil draw for, for 94. It was a friendly warm up. No, this, like, this had oh, to in They did play in, in like, the Confed Cup after, yeah. after the 2000 Gold Cup. That's it. And yes, that's it. And it was nil nil. And I remember as a kid just being like wildly proud of that result. <laughs> sure. Yeah. I, I I think Canada hasn't had a ton of great results against teams outside of CONCACAF. And yeah. Um but yeah, I mean, if we're talking about that like in 2026, and like I I think that's that's also the one. Like I, I, don't, I think obviously everybody's thrilled they're there, but I think that was the one that they were kind of envisioning as as that's when the team would would really do some damage. So hopefully, there's valuable lessons for them to be learned. You know, this time around. Yeah, I think so. No, I, th- I think it's really important that they're getting getting this World Cup in first to get that experience. And a lot of the players, you know, will, will presumably be there in a few years' time. So it should be good. Um, all right, but before we wrap up, there was there was one thing. Um, or before we make a few quick predictions for this World Cup, mm-hmm. um, one thing that I wanted to ask you about from the book, mm-hmm. which is that there's a quote, and this is a Gold Cup quote um, from Jeff Clark, and he says the likelihood of getting out the group was low, and you describe him as balding midfielder Jeff Clark, and <laughs> I wanted to ask whether he signed up to that description or that no. was just you. Yeah. Okay. No, this is a little bit of how the sausage <laughs> is made, or or how the how the um, how the pies at the side of the four hundred one in Coburg are made. Um, I, I my editor of the book just um, after I filed my first draft um, instructed me to to put in more to describe people more and more, and I I didn't you know I it was I don't know balding's not a I'm I'm probably gonna go bald. Some of my my heroes, but Gordani is my is my idol. He's bald. I love Michael Stipe. I love Larry David. I love. No, Gordani. it it doesn't come across malicious. It just come, it's just funny. Yeah, so that's that's kind of again. I was told you have to kind of and and now I'm sure if anybody is listening to this and and actually does me a solid and picks up the book, they'll they'll pick out those little things because. <laughs> Um, and it was tricky to do that with people like in the, in the chapter about Canadian soccer media, where I had to describe people that I work with friends of mine, you know, the, the charms and KJs of the world. And I had to be sure to describe them quite glowingly <laughs> while also accurately. Um, yeah. so yeah, that was a little, um, so having to do that was, was something that, you know, that was on the second draft. Let's just Fair say enough. That. adding the color. Fair yeah. Enough. You have to. Yeah. Uh, all right, Bernie, anything else on your end? Let me ask you guys, who are you guys going to cheer oh, for? Yeah. In this like, World Cup? Yeah. Oh, Canada. So why does it come to you that easily? Uh, well, I, I know why it comes to you that, you that easily. Alex. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I, I have a very complicated relationship with the English national team. Okay. Um, mostly because growing up, the, I mean, the culture around the England national team was horrible. 
but the football was generally horrible. I mean, not as bad as Canada in the 80s, 90s, early 2000s, but still pretty terrible. But more so the fans and the the drinking and the violence. And, yeah, the, and we're sure. kind of starting to see some of that creep back in. Um, but yeah, the whole culture around it was horrible. And I was born in Canada, but raised in the UK. And so kind of, I've always had somewhat of an identity crisis, but um, just choosing whichever one is more convenient at the time. But I don't know, this Canada team is just, it's extremely likable. The story as portrayed in the book is, is amazing. Um, And I've just about been here as long as I was there. So I, you know, it's. Well, you guys, you you know, you exist in the circles where you, you, you talk to football fans all the time. What do you like, who do you think people that are kind of in, in situations like yours, who do you think they'll cheer for? I think what tends to happen is, and, and sort of from my experience, if you're a dual citizen like myself, if your country, like your country of birth or you know, where your, your family is from is there, you will support them, but you also will support Canada. Now, if they play against each other, that's where the question come, comes in. And I think people will just sit on the fence. Yeah, I mean... Nigeria is my country and I was ready and willing to go and then we messed this up in the last minute. So <laughs> I'm full team Canada, but I was always going to support Canada anyway. You know what I mean? Can can I just as an aside, you, you bring up the Nigerian team. How, like, I, I, I think what we were talking about the kits and Canada not, well, we didn't talk about this, but, you know, Canada not getting a World Cup kit, which I've mm-hmm. written about at The Athletic and it's, something that, you know, Jonathan David kind of highlighted in the, the friendly against Qatar. Um, it's a huge, it's, it's, it's a huge kind of grievance with, with a lot of players. I think because this team has an identity and they are young and they're kind of, they're a little bit brash, but they're fun. They take chances. Like there, there's a genuine identity that, you know, I think it's, it's, it's a bummer that, that, you know, Canadians won't be able to kind of attach to with the shirt, which is, you know, sorry, a remarkably boring team wear shirt. (laughs) How good I always, I thought like how great would Nigeria's shirt in red have been on Canada? Because if there's a team that can embody just that, just the, the, the giantness of Mm -hmm. the Nigerian national team shirt in red, that's like, like some countries need, some countries need, I mean this, some countries yeah. need a classy, clean shirt. Like France, mm-hmm. France has to have something, you know, that from a runway, the, you know, Germany also always has to have something very simple, but effective. I really wanted Canada before, like before I found out that they wouldn't be getting a new shirt. I wanted mm-hmm. Canada to have this big brash shirt because something they have, Big brash characters, you know. I, I listen, man. I, I I understand where you're going with this, but, but. <laughs> that that Nigeria jersey. I, I know you're talking about the 2018 World Cup one. It can't work in red. Like it's that that green makes half of it. Okay. And around that time, it felt like the national jersey of Canada anyway, because everyone had the damn thing. Mm, so, yeah. But it's it's that red. I I would want. Can, the, the Canadian national team not to be I agree with you as bland as this but I want more white in the kit mm. like you know like if you, if, they, if they even did like a half like red and then white and like a really obnoxious maple leaf somewhere Ooh, like, a, like, a black, like a Blackburn kind of quadrant sort of thing 
A little bit. Because you, you can't get away with the, with the, I don't know what that, that sash. Thing that do. Yeah, that, you can't get away with that. But like, <laughs> at least something obnoxious. Because remember the, the US, the stars in 94? Yep. Like, whatever. Yep. It was ridiculous. But like, you can't forget it. <laughs> <laughs> you know they can get away with something like that. I think that's true. I actually think that the black kit that they have now is really nice. Um, I I so I, I'm I'm still scratching my head about this. I have had Canada Soccer representatives go on record and tell me that they are going to be allowed to bring three kits to the World Cup: the red, okay. the white, and the black. Yeah, and my reaction was yours, like, okay, that doesn't happen. Like what, <laughs> right? Like that never, you know what I mean? Like when yeah. has that ever, and if that was the, and they was like, no, FIFA's going to allow this. I'm like, well then why isn't Brazil making eight shirts and selling all of them and, and rolling it? Like, why wouldn't every team do that? My only like, and, and then if you look at the, the way Nike rolled out their kits, like it was red and white. I wonder if they would have to wear black against Croatia but I don't, I don't know. I wonder, but What's hey, listen, that, players love the black one too. Players mm-hmm. really love the black one as well. Yeah, it's nice. But to that point, I was just curious because I, I didn't read your article about it. Why are they not getting a special World Cup kit? I guess like, they're not the ones. Canada, like how does this work? Maybe this is a question because like, I, I just assume Nike goes, you're, how about this? And you go, yeah, sure. <laughs> you know, how does that design process work if we know? And why didn't Canada get a special kit? Well, I mean, forgive me, but first things first, you know, theathletic.com, subscribe. Uh, <laughs> yes, yes, I went, I went, I went in, no, listen, when, when Nike's kits were unveiled, um, I guess two weeks ago, I kind of went in depth on the, the story. Um, what Nike says is that Canada is on a quote, different development cycle. Um, <laughs> so there's, there's that. Um, I think, um, that look it takes at least 18 months as i was told for a kit to be designed prepared um market research and then to be unveiled and it has to be unveiled you know a few months before the world cup 18 months before these shirts were unveiled did anybody think canada was going to a world cup right and so i think that their success has been their their ascent has been so rapid that a lot of people including nike were caught off guard um, I, I know it's made a lot of people upset. I mean, Canada soccer it, it, through a variety of kind of interviews told me that they just, these, these conversations just didn't happen and they don't know why they didn't happen, which is frustrating for fans in its own right. But players are upset because a lot of players know this will be their only world cup and they're getting the kind of shirt that you can find, um, you know, way in the back at sport check. Uh, that you know your your Sunday league guys might play in with a with a Maple Leafs that you know yeah. thrown out over the heart. So yeah, f- frustrating for a variety of ways. I bet if you were to hand this file to Drake, who I mean, there are a couple stories about him in the book too. Um, I bet he'd get it done in a couple of months. Yeah, thank you for reminding me that Drake somehow worked its way worked his way into this book. Um, yeah, some of the stuff I I found out about Drake meeting the the national team after um after their win against Panama was just it was just cool. It was cool to imagine this this team as as fanboys, you know, a few hours after like legitimately putting themselves in the the, the country's greater consciousness, mm-hmm. they're kind of becoming fanboys. But 
Yeah, honestly, it's 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 disappointing. I think there could I think there's a lot. I mean, I'll, I'll put my hand up. Like I, I cheer for the German national team, mm-hmm. and when they released their line of like World Cup stuff a few weeks ago, like my credit card took a hit, and. <laughs> th- there should be a lot of Canadians who should be lining up to do the same, you know, like it's cliched, but yeah, like put, put Maple Leafs all over it. And that, that doesn't like just for now, like in 2026, we can evolve into something else, <laughs> but like, it's, it's, it's insane that the, like yeah. that, that Canadians won't have, I, I will tell you a, a true, story that that speaks to to where we're at um my son is is he's going to be four uh in a few weeks and he's he he's getting into the game i mean the book is dedicated to him he's getting into the game he knows what it's all about um when i when um when canada was playing the united states in in hamilton i was obviously at the game covering it my wife was sending me videos of, of him. We have a, um, we have a trampoline in our living room, which is wilder than it sounds. It's a small trampoline. He's jumping, he, he's jumping up and down, um, watching the game and he's just cheering, go Canada, go, go Canada, go. And my wife, you know, got this video of it. And I ended up just in a moment, um, a few weeks later showing it to John Herdman. And, and we kind of talked about how that's what he wanted more and more Canadians to kind of feel, and, you know, I start talking to my wife about it. I'm like, okay, so are we getting him a, a German national team shirt or a, a, a Canadian one? And she didn't hesitate. She's like, we got to get him a Canadian one. The only place I could find it was a knockoff one at the X this summer. Mm-hmm. And it's I didn't impossible. hesitate. I didn't hesitate because I knew that's where that's, that's the, probably the only one he'd be able to, to find. And that's what he was going to wear. Um, yep. So... You know, it's a Davies one, but um, yeah. yeah. Anyway, I I, I don't yeah. know I don't know what that story represents, but it, it, I'm sure I'm not the only one to have gone through that kind of ordeal. No, you got the sure. sport check online right now. I'm just actually. Yeah, I'm looking at it. Alfonso Davies. It's called He's, a legend T-shirt for some reason. So it's happens. a t- so it's a T-shirt. It's not the jersey. It's the oh t-shirt. really? Well, what? How much is it? What What does it well, cost? You're right. You're right. You're right. Yeah, if it's if it's under like 150 bucks, it's, it's not real. It's, it's, it's a t-shirt. Now I feel screwed over. Yeah, I hope you didn't I, buy it. Well, I'm looking at lids. Not seeing they've got something for 249. So I'm like, what was it right off his back? Like, oh this? my god, <laughs> Jesus! <laughs> Don't go shopping for a shirt in a hat store. Um, yeah, I mean that that's that's indicative of a lot of things, but. He's he's just about the perfect age for the first World Cup, and he's going to be absolutely the perfect age when it comes to 2026, right? So um, it's good stuff. Um, before we, we wrap up, Joshua, uh, predictions for Canada in the World Cup in November and December. Um, will we win a game? Will we make it out of the group? Will we perform well and, and make everyone proud but go home at the first at the first hurdle? Oof, like I... Like I- the, for the first two questions, yes, maybe. Like, yeah, I, I think Canada wins a game, and I, I think they win a game um, because in a tournament, game breakers can win games on their own. Like, not this isn't a league setting. We're talking about like if if they do get three games, 
I will, in tournaments, I will always bet on talent. And I still think Canada has, you know, if, like Belgium, let's get that, like they get that one out of the way. There's yeah. zero expectations, but it's really beneficial to them that they have their hardest game to start because no one was going to expect them to win anyway. And everybody kind of has their, you know, their holy shit moment. And then you can reset, right? Um Croatia, I, I stand by it. If they can run Croatia into the ground and, and if Herdman, you know, deploys his fastest team possible, I it, I think a draw is entirely possible. I'm not saying it's going to happen. It's very possible. Sure. And then against Morocco, like I, I think my sense is Alfonso Davies will have a game at the World Cup where he takes over a game. And if, if he, they can do that against Morocco, like I'm, I'm shrugging, but I, it's, yeah. it's possible that he can, it's, it's possible that, that like, it, you know, combined with the attacking talent they have up front, it's possible that this, that this can happen. It's possible yeah. that a win can happen. You know, it's, it's important to remember too. And I know this isn't like the sexiest reason we watch world cups, but Players know, and the, the world of scouting is far more detailed than it used to be, but players know that the World Cup is a shock window. And a lot of these players know that they, if they show up and they put in the best performance, you know, in their lifetimes, that could lead to bigger contracts with the teams, with club teams around the world that they've only dreamed of. And players quietly will tell you that. And mm-hmm. they, you know, so... And I'm not saying it's on Alistair Johnston to win a game for Canada, but those are the kind of players that can surprise and do things, right? Um, But yeah, just in terms of winning a game, I do think they can win a game because I think there will be moments where Alfonso Davies shows what he is truly capable of. And I think, you know, if all goes to plan, we're talking about Alfonso Davies literally as one of the better players on the planet after this World Cup. And Jonathan David, don't don't leave out my boy. I think I think he's gonna be a surprise. Uh, I, I, I I want him at a certain club, but I, I think <laughs> he, he could be a very surprise package at that World well, Cup. And, sure. and I thought he he thought he was getting his big move this summer, and and so the, inter, I mean there there are players at lower levels who could also very well earn bigger moves, but. He, he's one of those that even at that higher level could still earn that move in this World Cup. Yeah, and, I, and I, like I think Jonathan David scores in the World Cup, but I just think, you know, Jonathan David doesn't have the ability to make six yeah. players around him look silly the way that, that Alfonso <laughs> Davies. And I really believe that um, Alfonso Davies will have a game. It's just if if he does it against Belgium and then it's kind of – you know, it's, I'm not saying it's wasted, but, um, yeah, it, it, it depends when it happens, but that's one, that's one prediction I feel very comfortable making is that Alfonso Davies has the kind of game that, you know, sports center leads with and, you know, right. I mean, I hope sports center leads with every game, but whatever, like I just, you know, that's, that's, that's the kind of thing that he needs to do. Like I, I know Panama is, is not, um, Morocco, but we saw what he can do against Panama. And then we saw how, you know, what he can do can go viral and how it can galvanize a country. So that's kind of one prediction I'm very comfortable making. That's fair. Yeah. I, 
I, I think it might be. I think now that you've said it, I think it might actually be a bit against Belgium because they still have the defense from like 2008. Um, whereas against Morocco, it just occurred to me that he will probably be up against Ashraf Hakimi, who's like one of the only players in the world that might be able to rival him for pace, but also can't defend very well. So who knows? He'll have multiple opportunities. Anyway, we'd better leave it there. Um, Joshua, thank you so much for joining us. Um, where can people find you and where can people find the book? Uh, people can find the book. That's far more important than me. People can find <laughs> the book anywhere they buy books. Um, I always you know, suggest or hope people give their, their local bookstores downtown a call, ask them if they have it. And if not, they'll definitely be able to order it for you. Um, but it's available in, in, you know, the big box stores, um, which I'm not going to, you know, name or whatever, but, um, there, the book is for sale anywhere that you can buy books. And, and if I, you know, my hope, my genuine hope, forgive the, the earnestness, but my genuine hope is that if people are interested in learning about how this team, uh, got to where they are and if, if people are interested in learning more about the sport and if people just want to get on the bandwagon that this is a way in for them because I mean I put a lot of very you know early nights and very very early mornings and very early very late nights into this um, and I you know I, I hope that people take something away from it because it, it was it was a lot of fun working on it I learned something and and I do think genuinely think that the men's national team is on the cusp of something bigger and and you know hopefully there's more books about them on the horizon too absolutely uh, once again it's the voyages the canadian men's soccer team's quest to reach the world cup i had a great time reading it i i'm sure that anyone listening will too um so thank you once again and uh chat to you soon oh thank you thanks Josh.